Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today we are recording episode 90. I'm very grateful to have another guest. Before I introduce my guest, I want to introduce my book, which is A Gift from Adversity by Julie Love, and it's available on Amazon. Same title as this podcast, A Gift from Adversity. The subtitle of this book is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. And I wrote this book because I wanted to not only share my adversity and life story, but also some ideas and techniques that I use to overcome these challenges in my life. And also I touch base on the nonprofit work that I've done for 12 years with juvenile offenders. So if you're interested in, uh, please look a gift from adversity on Amazon. So today we have a wonderful guest, Ashley Barton. I met Ashley from Love Life Now Foundation fundraiser at the fashion show as domestic violence survivor models, and we raised great money to bring more awareness and help domestic violence victims. So I'm very excited to have her tonight. Hi, Ashley. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Great. So um, let's tell your audience who you are and where you're coming in from today and what you do and if you have a website or social media. Yes. Um, my name is Ashley Lynn Burton. Um, I am actually in Hingham, Massachusetts right now. And uh, I have a few social medias. Um, I do work, you know, full time, but um, I also do things on the side, which is really important to me, which is um, um, single mommies I um, have been working on for women that are single and also um, struggle with abuse and single um, and domestic violence as well. And I do have a social media, it's called, sing, it's at singlemommies.com on Instagram. And then my other Instagram is personal profile is Ashley Lynn Burton underscore 32. And regular Facebook is just Ashley Burton. Thank you so much. So Ashley, let's talk about your adversity. My first question. So can you tell all this? What was your adversity? Um, well, my adversity was all started when I was a little girl. I was actually, you know, um, growing up and um, a tough upbringing. And I was felt very different from my um, from my whole family. And uh, it just led me into a lifestyle where I followed um, the, how would I say it, the um, track of my family. Uh, so, you know, just the cycle I meant to say, I couldn't get it out. I'm sorry. Um, so I followed the cycle and, you know, I had a lot of struggle growing up. I didn't have a lot of, um, support and foundations and, and being alone and having to be bullied and just doing a lot on my own in growing up in school and just being a single mom. Um, I had a lot going on in my lifestyle that I needed to change to break that cycle in my life today. 
So Ashley, thank you for sharing that. Let's dissect a little bit more. So how did you describe that you were different and then um, bullying part of it? Like, what what is it? Um, well, my family's lifestyle was a lot of addiction. And um, I felt very displaced because of my color. Um, because my nationality, I was very different from my family. They were all Caucasian and I felt very left out. Um, and that's how I grew up. I felt very, uh, alone and just didn't fit in. And I was always bullied because of my family history of addiction that I had struggled with most of my life. Um, and it, it just grew with me my whole life. And I had to struggle through that by myself and trying to figure out who was who am i who was ashley um and that was um very scary it was very tough growing up being different so your parents were caucasian yes well my my mother's side my father was panamanian and my mother was german and caucasian and they're very um they were americanized and i lived with them my mother's side and it was very different for me. I didn't really live too much with my father. I was pretty back and forth with my parents. Um, I actually was in the system back and forth as well. So, you know, being all over the place and not really knowing where I belonged, it really put a lot of um, stress on me as a little child. And I think growing up to that, growing up with that, my mindset was always, I never fit in. So, you know, it took a long time for me to get to where I'm at today. So we definitely gonna save that tools part and how you came out of it later on, but let's bring back, how old were you? Like you were in elementary school, middle school, especially when you're getting bullied? Um, it was elementary school. Um, I was bullied for a very long time. I didn't fit in with a lot of the crowd and I actually got along with a lot of different people, um, a lot of different minorities. And I just tried to fit in, I think. And it just, I had always like another situation in life where I was just being bullied. I didn't have a family. Like I didn't really have a great home. I was always in and out of trouble. Um, yeah, I just, I had a lot of bullying when I was a child. Like, was it the physical assault or more verbal? It was verbal um, and physical. Um, I had to, I had to get into fights when I was younger because I had to defend myself. Um, and it would always be a group of girls. And I didn't understand why. I just knew I had to defend myself. So, you know, it did get physical at some times. And that was something that I had to do for a very long time within middle school and high school. So was that Hinka, Massachusetts? Was that somewhere else? Yeah. I was born in Fitchburg, Massachusetts and raised in Lemonster. Um, because I was in the system, I ended up having to go to different schools as well. So going through those schools, I didn't have a long period of time in some of them, but my main schools where I had the trouble was where I was from, it was Lemonster Mass. 
and where I was from, um, also born and raised, was in Fitchburg, Mass. So when you say system, was that DCF? Like what? Yeah, that was DCF. So were you on like a group home or foster home? I was in foster homes when I was a lot younger. Um, I would say a few. I can't really count the numbers. Um, and I also got in trouble when I started getting older. So I ended up being, you know, in juvenile custody, which is, you know, in the system that way too, where I had to be committed till I was 18. Um, and they actually took good care of me, actually, the staff there, you know, to kind of monitor my life, you know, to be there for me, to support me through those challenges. Um, so, yeah, I was in that system in different ways. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for sharing that. Mm -hmm. So my work at um, nonprofit when I was running for 12 years was DYS uh, boys, not the girls. But I did um, go to some of the group home where DCF was supervising. And I met a girl who was 10 and then she said she was being, she had been in 17 different homes already. But she was only 10 years old. So she was very scared and nervous. Yeah, that's exactly, um, it's like you can't count, you know, it's it's just kind of part of what I grew up in. Um, I was born in it. A lot of, there was no structure. I didn't have the foundations. My parents did the best they can, um, but they weren't, they weren't on their time where, how would I say this? I feel they weren't ready to be parents, I guess. I was an only child um, out of my mom's side and my dad was had other children. And so, you know, they just didn't get it right. They were also suffered from addiction, you know? Um, my father was an alcoholic and my mother was an addict. So, you know, it, addiction really does take a toll on your life and your lifestyle and, um, I became part of that cycle. So Ashley, let's talk about 18 when you get out of the DOS system and then foster system because at 18, they'll like kind of kick you out from the system. And then what happened? And then I know I met you through uh, Love Life Now Foundation and I didn't really uh, learn about your DV um, history. What happened after 18 years old? Well, I ended up um, trying to move away. I moved away to New Jersey. And when I moved to New Jersey, I tried to start over, you know, run away. I ended up meeting someone who was older than me and I ended up um, getting pregnant. And so I had a baby at 19. I got pregnant at 18, had a baby at 19. Um, today he's 16 years old. Um, so, you know, I was a young mom. I ended up becoming a young mom and I chose a lifestyle, still the same lifestyle as like my, my family, you know, um, drugs, alcohol, partying, you know, it, it just wasn't able to kind of get it right. But yeah, that's what happened when I was 18. I ended up being a young mom. And what happened to the father? He left me at 12 weeks pregnant. 
Yeah. What? Yeah. Never met his son. Nothing. No. I tried. Yeah, I tried. But he come to find out he didn't want nothing to do with it. You, you know, ha well, with my child and wanted, you know, I just, I was young and he was a lot older than me. And, uh, you know, that's what happens. You know, sometimes you think love is real or it's just lust, you know, and I, I thought that that was it. And, you know, I was looking for love and I thought it was, and I ended up having my baby and um, I did it alone. So when you're at the hospital, when you delivered your baby, your son, Mm -hmm. Were you yep. really alone? Yes, I did have. Um, so the story about that is, um, to be honest, I did um, try to have my mother involved, but she was still in addiction. And so what happened was she ended up being in a recovery home in Boston and I tried to have her in my life. So what I did was, you know, I helped her and I brought her back to my, well, to me, to my house so we can have, so she can be there for the baby. And due to her addiction, I ended up bringing her to a detox again, the same day I gave birth to my child. So yeah, it was just a challenging with watching her. I kind of had to take care of my mom, so. And your dad never met your son? No, he um, died from cancer when I was 15 years old. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Glad to hear that. Yeah, so, it's tough. When your first baby's father left when you were 12 weeks pregnant, how did you feel? Mm, I felt angry. I felt lost, um, confused. Um, it, it's just, I felt abandoned again, you know, that abandoned treat that I've always been left. And so that took me to another place where I'm, I'm left to do this all over again by myself, make my own decisions, have to learn on my own. I, I, that's how I grew up. And then like, I, was just disappointed. I was scared though. I was very scared. How am I going to do this? What, how am I going to have this baby? I don't really have my life together. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, but I did it. I did it by myself. Um, my mom and knowing that she was in, in, in recovery again, over addiction, you know, I still struggled with that too. Cause you know, I wanted her to be in there, my life. And so I pretty much had to do it alone with my son and he didn't have a father. He just had me. And what happened after that? And then how did you get in being involved with the DV or was that the father of the, your first son that you experienced the most violence? Um, no. So I ended up having to, well, I ended up moving away to Boston 16 years ago due to getting in trouble, um, you know, making the wrong choices once again. And uh, I had to leave. Um, so I, I asked to go to Boston, you know, I needed to, I needed to go, I needed help and I wanted to go. And um, I ended up being in Boston and then I ended up meeting someone. I was in a shelter 
I had to go to shelters and I met someone at a sober dance at a sober party. And, um, he became abusive, um, and controlling. And this was a short term type of, um, relationship. So maybe two years in my son's life. And, um, it was really bad. It was very controlling. He, uh, tried to control everything I did, my, my surroundings, my technology, like my everything. I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. Um, being locked in doors, not being able to leave, um, you know, just following me. And then it came to a point in my life where I was able to call 911 because he tried to, tried to kill me. Um, so it was very dangerous um, like, like relationship, what I had, it was, I was only 20, 21 then. Um, and that's, it got really bad. And then he went to prison and then that saved me. Um, they caught him soon as it happened. I called 911. I had to hold my phone and hide it because he could, he was trying to take everything from me and I was able to hide my phone. And when, I was able to call the police before he was able to leave. They caught him right outside on time. And um, that was the last time I've ever seen him. And so that was my first um, domestic violence relationship. And so, you know, when I think about that, it's also my mother and my father were in domestic violence. So, you know, you kind of think about it like, you think this stuff is love. You think this is okay. And, um, yeah, so that's what happened in my first relationship with DV. Did you experience more DV after that? Yes. So I, um, my daughter's father, um, so she's 10 today. Her name's Jaya. And um, I was with him for a few years. I met him after, and it was nice in the beginning. And um, after a year in, it started to get controlling taking my phones, taking my vehicle, um, not being able to be with people, friends, um, stalking. This one got really more worse. Um, it got to a point where I couldn't go. When I go out, I, I was being followed, um, phone calls where I can see you, where you're at, you know, this is how intense it would get. It would just get deeper and deeper and deeper. And, um, it started getting really physical, um, physical, physical. And, uh, you know, we're talking black eyes. I'm talking like these things started to my control with my car, my phone, my, it was just really like consistently arguing this, the, the jealousy, Who's this? The questioning. It just, it was constant chaos. It was never a break. It was constant chaos. And just because I had children with this person, I thought I should stay. Um, but it also became another close call to my life once again. And uh, I was able to call the police and that was able to have to, for them to go um, get him. And, um, he he went to jail and I've never seen well I have not it's not that I have not seen him um I did see him after um but 
it was like the last time we've actually seen him because of the simple fact that I had restraining orders and, but it doesn't, a paper doesn't stop because after he was released after five years, he was still back on calling me, um, stalking me, um, still consistent. Um, not to this day, thank God, I still pray about it, but uh, I still have to have a restraining order to this day and it's been eight years that I have not been with that person. It is, the words doesn't, words cannot describe the weight of this DV. And first of all, I'm very sorry that you have experienced all of this adversity. And when you are in a situation where especially you have children and then you feel trapped and you feel you can't get out of it, it's the worst feeling. And you just, I, I'm lost words and then I'm very sorry that you had the experience calling 911 and get help. Mm -hmm. Um, so, when you were in the middle of domestic violence situation, how would you describe to our audience your mental health stage was? Mm. It took me, whew, it's emotional. Um, it's a, it's my emotional state was very, I wouldn't say broken. Cause I feel like that's just not the right words to say. Um, I feel that it was, it was just heavy, very heart wrenching. It was, it had so many mixed emotions. I mean, it was emotional, angry, disappointment, and 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 mainly for myself. I I hurt myself emotionally more because I made these choices and thought I already knew better. I should have known better. I grew up in that. So, you know, you don't end up blaming that person as much as you think you do because you end up in tearing yourself apart. You know, you think that you're doing the wrong, that you made these choices, that you did this. This is your fault. But that's how much damage was done to that from the relationships after back to back. Um, and, and it was very heavy for me. It took a long time for me to get to where I'm at today. Um, my emotions were everywhere. They were very heartbreaking and a lot of trauma and I had PTSD. Um, and so I had to struggle with that. So a lot of therapy came involved. So Ashley, when um, a lot of people are experiencing domestic violence, even that you said, the perpetrator uh, like hurting you, the self-sabotage part kills you more. And I had a guest yesterday that she was really, really bullied of her weight. And this is in Australia. But she said she bullied more to herself, by herself than other people. And when you really didn't have that support and then the subconscious when you are growing up where the parents 
didn't have this affirmation and love and consistency, you can't have that kind of resilience. And then when you have the external bullying and abuse, that I completely understand that you don't have a boundary to push it back and then you keep self-sabotaging yourself. That is true. That is very true because when I think about it, you know, you're only looking for something you've never had when you were little. And um, I, I struggled with that because I felt that, you know, love was that. Um, and, and that's what I was worth um, because I never received love and affection as a child, you know, um, and that's something that I struggled with. And those are, that's the reason to me, for me, as I speak for myself is why I chose the relationships I did because I thought, because this person did this and this was this and this is this way, you know, all these excuses. I really thought that that was love. I didn't know any better. I thought I was doing okay. I was doing something right. I was going to help this person because that's how I'm going to be loved if I was to beg and plead and, you know, and that reminds me of my childhood because I never had affection. I never had that love. I never received it. And so from coming from a life of being this little girl and not having any love and not having any discipline, not no structure and not being told it's going to be okay, you think that person that's telling you it's going to be okay is that person. And that's how, like, that's all I knew. And that's just crazy how, you know, being young and naive, I was, but I don't blame myself today. You know, it's, it wasn't, it wasn't my fault now you know i don't blame myself today so yeah it's a very deep when you're in domestic violence and being a survivor from it and just knowing that you overcame it and and just it's just a very uh it's so deep domestic violence is very serious and it takes a toll on you now, Ashley, I want to ask you this question that might be sensitive. You don't have to answer if you don't want to. So I met somebody who said, oh, you have daddy issue. And then the girls with the daddy issues are very easy to control. You just give them love and a little bit of attention and they are all yours. And then some of the guys actually pray, like the girls who are with, who had issues with daddy, daddy issues and I thought it was just the nastiest, nastiest thing that people can say. Mm -hmm. But then I realized it's a reality. Some of the guys kind of play on these vulnerabilities and then target, target us. Like, what do you think of that? Yeah, I see. I see how that it, that comes into play with um, certain men in situations because, you know, I had my dad, but I never got approval from my father. Right. And, uh, He's never told me he loved me, you know, and I loved my father very, very much. And I can see how once that partner of yours has that manipulation or whatever he thinks it is, it makes you feel like it can be, you know, like that father figure, maybe, you know, something that you're take control. You want that person to lead a little bit and, and, I can see where that vulnerability hits when it comes to women like me in my history. I never really had love and parenting and, and, and yeah, we can be very easily um, 
um, manipulated. I can say that because as a woman, you know, today and coming from where I came from, I can see where that comes across, where people say these things, but it's not, I just think that a men are good at manipulating, to be honest. I really think so in certain occasions when they know they can get over on somebody. Now it's like, I don't have that. I Now I know better. I know my red flags. I know the signs where I know. Yeah. That's just something that it's different. That well, thank, you so, thank you so much for touching on that. And then it's important to bring that up. Um, I have this really heartfelt comment on the live Kim Keith, um, who was my classmate at the Boston University when we did the nonprofit institute uh, for nonprofit leadership and management. And she's one of the director um, supervisor at the DCF. So Kim, if you're listening, um, actually went through the DCF, DOS kind of yo-yo system. But then Kim said, Ashley, you are such an amazing survivor. Thank you for sharing your experience. Do not tear yourself apart for any past relationship. You are most, most worthy. Oh, thank you, Kim. <laughs> I know that today and it feels so good. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. So, Ashley, I want to learn how you met Laverne how you met Love Life Now Foundation. So I met Laverne when um, I was going through my journey of healing through domestic violence. And I seen, I think it was an event where we went to the fashion show as we attended. It was one of those events three and a half years ago before COVID hit, maybe 2017 or 18, I don't know the date, but I seen the pamphlet and it said domestic violence awareness. And I just was like, I need to go, you know, I need to put myself out there and be okay, you know, to, to say that I have been part of the domestic violence. So I went to one of her shows before, and then I reached out to her on social media and it became friendships from there. And it was just really amazing that I didn't know her story. And when she said her story to me, I, it made me feel like I wasn't alone. So that's when I connected with her and I, I've been with there with Love Life Now ever since. So lovelifenow.org is an organization, domestic violence awareness and the survivor education. And then also um, they do a lot of awareness and help help the domestic violence victims as well. And Lava Gordon is also two times domestic violence survivor and then published author. And that's how we connected. Ashley and I were uh, part of the uh, sub survivor uh, fashion show. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, we wore this fabulous, um, amazing design and by new design from Avon. And then five males and then uh, five females we represented and we raised $7,500 together. So I was very proud and I was very happy to have met you. Um, and it was very interesting because I've never met so many DV survivors at once and even the makeup artists or people who are writing the slide. And it was just like so interesting, like you no, know, the hug um, that we had before the walk and then the applaud um, from the audience. And I've never felt 
that supported because obviously Ashley when you are getting physically abused from your perpetrator and you have to call 911 you had in this crazy controlling situation where you couldn't like reach out this is before pandemic like you are completely isolated from society and you felt so alone and then so was I but now my perpetrator is my father he completely trapped me so I had to escape from him when I was 13 years old um and I when when I was walking I think you felt the same when I was walking the wrong way and then when people are applauding I started to question like why are they applauding like why why are they smiling at me why are they so happy to see me and I realized that we're here, like we're standing, we're surviving. Like we, are, we have survived. We could have been dead easily, but then we are there. And I think the people are proud of us because that they saw through the struggle and then they saw that it's almost miraculous that we were there. And we looked fabulous too. <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. We looked amazing. <laughs> How did you feel about that fundraiser? I was scared, but um, I felt like it was so much. It was I was it was like it was time. Like I felt release and relief at the same time. Like I can finally breathe because I didn't know how to tell people or how to react and. I always care what everyone thought and people never listen. A lot of people didn't listen either, you know, and um, it felt good to be heard for once and be able to be understood. And that's how I felt because I was, as you know, like alone, you didn't think anybody cared or no one really listened. And when we walked through there, we just killed it and we looked amazing. And I just felt very, I felt love for the first time in my life. It feels good. Actually, explain, elaborate for me when you said nobody listened. Like, how, how did not people listen to you? Um, just telling them, you know, letting them know, like, it's happening. And it would be ignored. Um, like, friends, um, family, uh, It'll, oh, he'll change. Um, it's normal. You, you, it's your kid's dad or it's it's normal. You know, like that's normal. And it kept saying that in my head with people around me um, that it was okay for what I was going through. You know, give the person a chance. Um, oh, I don't believe you. That's not true. Oh, you you can leave easily. You know, those type of words. Like these are the words that I that would target me. Like if I can, I like how I'm pointing it out. Those are like just darts just coming at me. Like these are the ones that I ask for help. And these words are coming back to me, hitting me back. Like, wow, no one's going to listen to me. No one ever's ever going to believe me. Um, and I started believing, not believing myself that this is going to, he's going to change. This isn't going to happen again. Um, so I, it was very hard. And, you know, um, my mom too, you know, I lived with my mom's addiction and all that, um, dealing with that. She dealt with that through, from her relationships too. It was okay to be that, 
it be an abusive relationship. It was healthy, you know, that was the norm. And, and I just reached out for all my life. I've been doing it for most of my life. And um, now that I'm heard, I just like, I feel good about it. I can stand up and say these things. Um, and people understand, like, I'm not alone, you know. Ashley, let's go back. I would, I just want to share it with you personally. And I really never told you, like, when we were at the fundraiser, fundraiser because we all were busy getting ready yeah. and stuff. But basically, my story was... Um, after my parents got divorced when I was eight years old. And then my dad shifted his love towards me. So he started to sexually, physically, horribly, emotionally abuse me. And then I escaped from him when I was 13. But between, I would say eight years old to 13, it was really bad. And it, it was just really, really bad. Um, but then when I started to live with my mom after I escaped from him, and then first thing I said, Physical abuse, she believed. The sexual abuse, he never believed until I was maybe 30 years old. And that killed me. And I tried to kill myself when I was 15 because I thought nobody would listen. Nobody would believe because there was no awareness when um, in Japan, there was no um, sexual abuse stories and there was no incest stories, especially in the Me Too movement. None of that. Me Too movement is like so, so later. And in Japan still, 2022, it's so backward than America. So um, I would always say second and third shock waves are painful also, not just the initial um, incident when you are getting abused, but when you tell people, it takes you so much courage and bravery to share that. But then when that person completely shuts you down and then denies you and don't validate you that's i would say worse in a way yeah i agree um i remember telling my mother that i was um be honest abused when i was little and uh she's like no that never happened and um and i told her this when i was an adult and uh, before she passed away years ago. Um, but being honest with someone and being able to say these things to a parent or to a loved one and being and saying, no, that never happened. It's like, it's the worst feeling. I still, at, at 35, I still feel hurt from that. Like, it's like, because I never really got closure from any of my parents and, uh, that hurts. So, you know, that's why I'm in therapy today because I want to make sure I, I can heal through this because it's a very damaging wound. It's like an internal wound that it doesn't go away until you, you, you go after like, you need to heal that part. It's like really carries on. It carries on with you a long time. I just want to share a, a little quick personal story. When I found out my ex-husband was cheating on me, while we are in a marriage and then i told my mom about it and then she's like oh because you are ugly and you are not attractive and he's young and handsome and it's expected or something and then i just like decided to never ever share anything and i feel that it's not just partially powerful in a way but you know in japan like is a word danso johi which means men respected and women disrespected and 
it's part of the culture that I grew up with. The man comes first. Whatever they do, we just have to suck up. Um, just there's no power. So I just watched the movie she said about Harvey Weinstein, and then all this Hollywood power of money and fame, and all the girl like you know girls like actress, young actresses like after he sexually assaulted them, that they felt happy. Weinstein power 10 and then my power is zero and then that's kind of exactly how the manipulation and the power shift power trip happens and then the beliefs that women can tolerate or should tolerate and especially like Asian cultures and um, Middle Eastern cultures and African cultures those are like expected or known and that is not okay but then when you share these things that is devastating and to the wrong people that has settled mind that you should tolerate it and that's normal and that is just so devastating there's no escape for that none yeah i agree with you 100 percent because yeah that that's just uh, just talking about this is like it's it doesn't feel real but it feels good at the same time because it's just like it needs to be addressed within a lot of women especially me as a single mother um doing a lot of this on my own and having to repair my home from bottom up from my kids to by myself um and having a man a young man and having a young a young girl and just having to explain these things to them and and uh how to treat a woman and how to be a woman and 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 just knowing that i never had any of that um this is just a, such a great honor to be on here to talk about a lot of this stuff adversity and how we're, we're what we're doing today yeah well, actually, I really appreciate you. I want to touch base a little bit about single mom life. And I'm a single mom since 2019. And then I always say the B word, a single mom life is like a B word. And it's just so bad. It's just so bad. It's just like you have no escape. And then you have no break. And then you didn't create this human being by yourself. And then you just completely are alone. And then I was thinking, like, I came to America to pursue my dreams. And I worked really hard to get to this country and I never imagined myself that I would end up being a single mom. Mm -hmm. And speaking about single mom, like I know you know, but audience that don't understand, how hard is it? It's very hard. <laughs> it's I think it's so hard. I, every day, I'm not gonna lie, I have breakdowns. Um, I have to sit in my car. I have to drive to a beach. I have to get in the shower. My, sh my bathroom is my safe place. That's where I cry. That's where I go through everything because I refuse to have my kids see me in pain ever again um, from our past history of domestic violence. Um, being a single mom, you know, because I'm working on my business for single moms, um, I kind of, you know, it's possible. You know, you don't need a man to help you do anything. Um, you don't need a man to help you do the parenting in your home. You don't need a man to fix your house. You don't need, like, all these things that we think as women we require a man to do for us, we don't need it. 
And, and it's not that we don't want it, but we don't need it. And that's something I'm really, really big on. Um, being a single mom, I accept today. I'm not looking for the next man to help be father to my children because I am their father. And if there is a partner in the future that comes in life, and I know how to make the right choice today for it. And I want them to understand that your mom, you know, it's okay to be alone to and, and to raise your kids and have two jobs or have one job, whatever you do. But you know what? I always say to put yourself first as a mom. If you do not become, if you do not come first, then you cannot take care of your children. So, you know, you follow your dreams, you follow your goals, you work out, you meditate, make sure you take care of your self-care is the most important thing of being a single mom. And people don't understand that sometimes. They're very close-minded women out there in, in motherhood out there right now that everything is all about their children first and all about this and all about that, that we forget about ourselves. And we got to understand that being a single mom, we need to learn how to put ourselves first because we don't have another partner to help us. So who's going to pat ourselves on the back? Who's going to take care of our, our, our heavy backpacks? We need to, because that's what I'm big on. I make sure I take care of myself every day before I take care of my kids. I wake up in the morning early. I take my shower. I meditate. I exercise. I even take care of anything I need to make sure my mental space is good before I walk out of my bed every day. So I can be able to take on the, the day for my children, you know, and that's something that helps me every day. It may not help everyone else, but that's what helps me as a single mom, because ever since I've done that, my children are much happier. If you're not in a good space as a mom, then your kids will not be in a good space. And that's something I'm very big on when it comes to being on my healing journey with being a single mom and actually accepting it and not looking for the man to fix me or fix any situation. Cause that's all I used to do, you know, try to chase this thing that my kids need this. No, they don't. It'll happen when it happens. And I finally accept that today. And now I'm stronger than ever as a single mom. I enjoy being a single mom now because I know I have my foundation. I built this. And now that I built it, my kids are happier. I'm able to pay my bills. I'm able to do this without any help. That's where us single moms need to work on more. We don't need another significant other to take advantage, like to help us with the bills or help us with all that. We're capable, 100% capable of doing it. Because if I can do it, anybody can. And I came from, I came from being homeless and not having any help and not being able to do it with nothing. And I did it. And now I'm actually where I'm at today, where I know probably, Jerry, you're going to ask me where I'm at today about, you know, my um, healing and my journey and stuff. So, um, but that is where it took me. I'm, I'm just, my mind is on a, on a great path as a single mom today because I put myself first. Then that's, that's how I, that's how I work with my family at home. So Kim also mentioned, thank you both for having this important conversation. Oh, thank you. Yes, it's very important. It's very important. Um, and that's something I really want to touch base on in the future. Yes. So we are going to save a little bit about the tools, but I just want to mention a little bit. So there are some very important subconscious and um, biases. I just want to mention, I 
I, I told you a little bit about Japanese culture, but mm-hmm. basically like we were not, some, some women were not even allowed to go get an education, but to go to cooking school and then go kimono making school. So that's like, we are taught to be servant for men. Therefore, however the career that we have, I have a very, I think you know me a little bit that I am a journalist, film, TV producer, award-winning musician. I do a lot of things. And then when you look at me from outside, like I have this success and then accomplishments. I was at Foxborough High School as a guest speaker. And then some, some kids mentioned, so how do you measure your success? What's your next level of success? And I'm like, do you think I'm successful? And he said, yes. And I don't know why I asked that. Then I realized that a lot of value in our culture is if you're single, you will not value it. And if you're so if you don't have a boyfriend and if you don't have a partner, you're a loser and you are not complete. And that's kind of our culture. So I was talking to my PCP and shout out to Dr. Bell. And mm-hmm. he said to me at one of the physical last year, about single month, Julie, you are in America. And he's been in Japan. He's been in Japan, so he understands our culture. Julie, you are in America. You are okay to be single. It's okay to be single. And I'm like, what? So then also I had this significant conversation that I want to share with you and audience. I was doing Marvel Studio movie in Hollywood, California at the Paramount Studio, which was an amazing opportunity for me. I was a photo double for Michelle Yao. And then I had this wonderful actor standing, Malia, shout out to her. Then I was talking to her about me and my relationship with the men. And she said, my career is like this, professional, but my relationship is like this, low. So this child, the relationship and expectation has to meet the professional level all the way to the top. Well, you have to have boundaries and, you know, you just have to let that little girl grow up to the stand that you have. So it was very awakening for me. So I completely appreciate you bringing up that about the, being single is completely okay. Um, so let's actually move on to the tools part. You mentioned some of the um, important part of it. So what are the tools that you use to overcome this domestic violence, homelessness, and being DCF, bullied, all these adversities? What do you think the number one tools that you can share with the audience that works or worked for you? What worked for me is being grateful every day being able to be alive today. Um, that was my, that's my number one thing. Every morning I get up, I'm grateful. Um, and I put my mental health first because before years ago, before I'm, before I was here today, I was in a dark place that I've never seen myself ever be before. Um, and I'm going to be a little bit more open right now. Um, I'm in AA now. Um, I stopped drinking. Um, I didn't know I was getting to a place where I never knew I was going. And that was about 16, 17 months ago today. And I put myself in a position where I needed help and I needed more help. 
I was drinking and drinking and drinking and didn't know I was drinking my, my feelings and emotions away. I was doing the work, you know, the, the um, healing and everything else and reading the self-help books, networking, but I didn't know I was substituting as well. So not everything was getting help. Um, I became very dark place about a year ago where I sat in my couch right here behind me and uh, I didn't want to be here anymore. And that's something that took me surprised because I have everything I needed, everything I asked for, but I didn't do the inner work. And um, I thought I was, but I wasn't. And um, so I asked for help. And so now I don't drink anymore. I don't put a substance in my body because of the simple fact that I did that most of my life and didn't know I was in part of the addiction cycle as I became in the cycle as it was, you know, I was born in it, in it. Um, and I didn't know any better. And then I noticed, I'm like, something's wrong. And so what I did is I got help and I got help from my therapist and I started to actually take my mental health very seriously. So, you know, I started to um, meditate, started to write, started to just kind of be nice to myself. I stick sticky notes in my bathroom to tell me how beautiful I am. And, and I'm working on my little child, my inner child. And um, I didn't know that was even existent until I got sober. I have an inner child that I need to work on. And so, you know, I don't know if anybody can relate to that, but I do a lot of healing every single day. And I built my patience, which is another thing that I've done to have to have patience with yourself because I, I always have, I have a sponsor now um, in a, and um, I never thought I would be saying that I was going to be an AA because my family never got it. They all died from drugs and alcohol. And I didn't want to be the next person because, you know, even though my life looked great and I had everything and a good job, but I was dying inside, didn't even know. And I needed the help and I got the support. And so now I, I make sure I write I um, be kind to myself, like my sponsor, I was going to say, my sponsor says, be kind to yourself. And that's what I do every day. I make sure I tell myself I'm smart, I'm strong, I'm a great mom. And even on the hardest days, I have to tell myself every day that I'm going to be okay. Because that's the only way I can help myself be a better person for my kids. Because if I don't, like I said before, that we spoke about being single mom is that, you know, if you don't put yourself first, you can't be you know, part of your kid's life. And um, I don't want to get emotional, but ever since I stopped drinking, my kids has been even more amazing. They shine brighter. Like I started to heal. I started to make different choices. You know, those are the most important things as a woman for me, for me as a mom and as a single mom to just learn from your, learn from all the mistakes that you've made and learn from all the stuff that you have gone through and teach yourself and that's something I live with every single day. And even on my hardest days, I cry. I cry all out. I cry about everything because I've never was able to be vulnerable. So, you know, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to have emotions. It's okay to do anything that makes you feel better. And so those are my, that's my journey. And I even get, take myself out for massages and facials. And, you know, I take care of myself today. I never what I never did. I never took care of myself eight years ago. I look a lot younger than I did when I was in my domestic violence relationship. Imagine how far I came. Um, and that's all because you do the work. You have to do the work. And um, 
it's it takes a lot but it's so possible and once you're there at that place where you're in a healing place where you know that you you don't have no more chaos like i'm at peace today i don't have any headache i don't feel like i'm lost i don't feel like there's something coming that i don't know like i'm literally sitting with peace today like i don't have anything burying me today i i completely put my 100% into my healing and i make sure I talk to my therapist about it and um, you got to get it out. Like there's, everybody has something and it's just like, you got to take that baggage out. And if you don't take that baggage out, I, it, it just kind of gets, it gets, it stacks up and it's going to hit you. And that's what hit me 16 months, months ago, because I didn't want to do the work. I didn't know I wasn't doing it. So those are the things that I work on every day. And I feel like I'm in a better place today because I've never ever been this happy in my entire life. So that's, that's how I work. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ashley. And I'm very happy to hear all these accomplishments. And then as hard as your life was, you are in a completely different stage and you are in a different place. And speaking of it, I'm a little bit curious about seeing the red flags and then seeing, um, especially these men, like who had abused you. Now you are in a different stage. How can you say no? Or how can you say, how can you see the signs? Can you give some advice for maybe women or even men to see, to recognize this abusive signs that you don't really get into? And then if you are getting to, if you happen to realize how you get out of it, um, so I've been single for about eight years. Um, I have been on some dates and then where I had some dates where this might mean a little childish for me, but for me, as me being in a domestic violence survivor and knowing I've been through a lot, when the gentleman tells me you don't cook, why don't you, you should be cooking. Why should I have to cook? You know, that's one of, for me, I feel like that was kind of like a red flag for me. Like you feel that you're obligated. What if I don't cook if I'm not good enough? You know, those, that's just like a one example. And I feel like that really kind of was like, okay, I can cook. We can cook together, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to dish that out on a first date. But at the same time, you shouldn't tell me that I should be cooking. That's like a control thing for me. That's my red flag before that I will not talk to you again because it's like you don't know me you know we don't know each other yet I feel that it was way too forward first date you're that comfortable to think that I should be able to x y and do so you have expectations for me before you even know me so that's like for me that's a control thing for me I don't ever want to be controlled I want someone to be able to be love me for me and all my flaws and if I don't cook then so what <laughs> I don't want to cook. I don't like to cook. I shouldn't feel like I have to explain myself um, to a man, you know, and that's something that I had come across where I feel like um, the nitpicking, you know, oh, you must have a lot of men because you're a beautiful woman. Then you're automatically jealous for me. That's how I see. These are the things that I'm, these are the words that I start to point out where I'm having a conversation with a man that's automatically insecurity issues. I don't want to be with that person. Automatic. That's where my mind is now. I, you have insecurity issues. I built my, I built my, my um, security now. I have, I'm secure. 
I don't have those insecurities, the jealousy that I still have a little bit of things to work on, but I don't have that. That's not in my head right away when I see a man. Oh, you must have a lot of women. That's me being jealous. You know, these are things that I had to reciprocate when I was in my domestic violence relationships, because when my partner would do that, I automatically think like that, you know, and I don't want to think like that ever again with another man. I want to be able to be open and, and, and accept and let it be genuine and just let it flow. I don't want to have the questions because then I get triggered. I have PTSD. Um, and so, you know, those are red flags where they feel like they control kind of those words that you feel like you are obligated, you should be doing. That's not, no, that's not appropriate um, for a woman to have received that from another man. I say, if we were down the road and like, oh, why don't you, let's cook together. Like if it was very uh, genuine conversation in the future, if you guys were dating. Um, but these are red flags you need to see when you start to listen to someone conversating with you and trying to get to know you. Um, but those are my red flags. Those are just an example, but just to kind of look out for those is what, when it comes to a, a man where it feels like they can uh, gaslight you or manipulate you um, to becoming something you're already not. And that's something you should be able to be yourself. So when, they, when there's a point across where they say things like that, well, why don't you do that? Or, or you know, why, why isn't that, why, why do you choose it? That? Like, they shouldn't be a question of why you shouldn't do anything as a woman. You should be able to be respected as who you are. And you step in that room, you should be able to be who you are, you know, and not feel like you have to change or pretend to be. Because I used to have to pretend to be for many years. I would never do that ever again. And, and now I feel better. You know, I feel good. It's harder in the dating world now because a lot of people, you're men just want one thing and and that's something i don't want anymore and i don't want to be used and abused like i was and um i have higher higher expectations for myself now you know i respect myself and i know what i deserve and that's something that as women as moms we need to know what we deserve and it's time to have it up here meaning taking care of ourselves up here and just love ourselves and and things will follow I'm 46 years old and he's 35 years old and I wish I met somebody like you when I was 35 and I wish somebody would have told me and then I didn't waste my 15, 16 years, whatever. But, you know, um, it's never late. And then I just feel that, um, you know, a lot of times a victim of the child abuse, neglect, and then all these difficult situations growing up stemming to the domestic violence issues, it's not like, you just started to be a victim of domestic violence. There was some significant damage and then the validation issues and then also the void that you are looking to fill and then unconditional love that you seek for the parents, but they you couldn't. So that's why you also seek for other men in a relationship and that fails and then also the state of emergency that you grew up with, that you're comfortable with, that you attract these emergency situations so we have to recognize these things and it's hard but i just want to share a little bit with you and audience that um the minute that you start to get depressed or anxious or try to take your life you really have to think about those moments that you are actually getting physically abused or sexually abused that this thing happened a long time ago 
But then by you doing that and not being with, being physically with the perpetrator right now, but you are doing that to yourself, is giving them a control over your life right now. And that's really sad and that's a fact. But then you need to realize each moment that you have in your life, each day you have your life, like they don't have to control you. And you need to really overcome that. It's sad. It's really hard. And I've been in panic attack situations and PTSD situations so many times that I wish I didn't. But then they take over your mind. But you need to really say no to those. It's not like physically that you are away from them, but mentally they are the monsters that in your head that's eating you up. And you just have to say no to those and you have to somehow find the courage and the strength to brighten your day and not think about these people who had abused you. So that's kind of my piece of advice. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, well, it's, it's important. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So let's ask the last question, which is a gift that came from it. So Ashley, what is the gift that came from the adversity? The gift is being able to um, love myself again. That's the most beautiful thing I've ever, like, I love me today. Um, I'm very humble. I have so much patience and um, I'm very grateful. So after, just, just, this is the gift right here is me, you know, I'm a miracle. And um, I think that just standing here and well, sitting here and talking with you and being able to actually, this is like my dream come true, to be honest, this happening, you know, this is an honor. I. I'm, this is happening for me. Everything that's going on in my life, this is what I'm grateful for. Um, it's actually happening in my life. I'm able to have a voice. I've been wanting to do this for so long in my whole life. And now I'm in peace. I don't have any chaos. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy today. My kids are happy, which is the most important. So my babies are amazing. They're waiting for Christmas. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I want to leave with you and with our audience, one of the uh, mantra that I've learned, you are the love that I seek. I'm the love that I seek, sorry. I am the love that I seek. Oh. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? I love it. It is, it is, it's true. Yeah. I'm the love that I seek. I'm the love that I seek. Yeah. And yes. when you keep saying that, it like, you can feel it. I'm the love that I seek. Because yes. we never got to love each, you know, ourselves for so long. It's like, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. You're always outsourcing your love and you're seeking some validation, but you realize that I'm the love that I seek. And I really enjoy that mantra. So I just mm -hmm. want to leave that with you and with our audience. But thank you so much, Ashley, for being here today. And thank you for our listener, Kim. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks, Kim. <laughs> Uh, happy holidays to everybody and we'll have more episodes coming up and keep going and then keep winning. Thank you everybody. Thank Night. you. Good night. Merry Christmas.